Hey, what's up, church? Good morning. Please remain standing as we read God's word. Today's reading is from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved, through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good afternoon. My name is Marco, and I serve as the preaching pastor here at Storehouse McAllen. It's a joy to be with you this afternoon. Thanks for being here, particularly on our six-year anniversary. Yeah, man, we're we're just going to keep milking that like all day, right, or afternoon. But nevertheless, in the event that you didn't catch Eric, we're going to find ourselves this afternoon in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 to 15. And I know what you're thinking. Why didn't we just close chapter 2? Because I didn't want to. So here's where we're at, right? 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 to 15. While you open or load your Bibles, I've got a couple of quick things for you. The first one is, if you are new, welcome. We love God's Word. We love to preach from God's Word. Uh, therefore, we love to gift God's Word. And so if you do not have a Bible, or if you know someone who does not have a Bible, hook them up. We have plenty. That is our gift to you. Take one or five. In addition to that, if you're new to Storehouse, you've been checking us out for a little bit, I want to invite you to fill out one of the connect cards. They're on the pews. They're in the uh, lobby behind you. Uh, We'd love the opportunity to pray for you or to connect with you, whether it's over coffee or or lunch. I'd, I'd be honored if you filled one out. With all of that being said, I'd like to dig right into our time. As I was studying for this text this week, uh, I realized that my family and I have gone through a couple of gracious seasons and scenarios where we've learned about God's grace for us, both this last year and recently. And so I want to share three brief stories. They're very short, uh, and I think they have some humor to them, maybe. The first one came from a conversation my wife and I were having. Uh, Earlier this month, she created this new seating area outside in our backyard, and the final product looked pretty dope. I'm not going to lie, right? Some of you have seen it, and it was great. Uh, And so as we were talking about this project of hers, I asked her, uh, what is it that you think that you lacked after thinking that you had it all figured out when you mapped out all of this project, all of the materials that we were going to need, all of the the numbers, what is it that you think you lacked after the project was complete? And for her, she said, oh, I lacked grace and patience, right? And so uh, it wasn't skills that my wife lacked, but it it was this idea of grace, Then earlier this week, we bought our son his first car. We named his car Rocket. It's very cool, right? Uh, (laughs) And Seth is is freaking pumped, right? He's he's pumped to have the car. He's pumped to finally get to work on the car. We have it in the driveway. We lifted it. And so he's like doing all sorts of things. We were buying parts because he needs to update a few things on the car. And in the garage, uh, we have this big whiteboard, and so he wrote out all of the projects and all of the work that the car needs or that rocket needs, and Seth said, I'm going to knock these out before Sunday. Currently, he's on a field trip or a end-of-the-year band trip. 
Anyway, so he writes all of these projects. He's like, I'm going to knock these out before Sunday. And uh, here we are, and only three were knocked out this week. Um, And for Seth, uh, as I was just thinking about it, for him, it wasn't knowledge that he lacked. It's not like he doesn't know what to do, but he lacked resources in, in the last couple of days. And then as I considered the last year, as I've had the privilege of discipling and developing several young men in our church, particularly some who aspire to pastoral ministry, I've been excited in executing all of these like spreadsheets and systems. And we got all of these resources. And some of you know where it's like, read these books, write these papers, you're going to grow. And really, I haven't lacked Uh, by God's grace, I haven't lacked in resources. I haven't lacked in like a systematic development. But but over the last year, what was revealed uh, was something a little bit more deeper, and that is my impatience. My pride was exposed, and certainly my, my cynicism. Here's the point. All of us, at some point, think we got it all figured out. All of us at some point think we got it figured out. And I think this is the way many Christians approach sanctification. That is our our growth in godliness. We'll, We'll talk more about that in a minute. But I think this is how many Christians, and maybe that's you, you approach sanctification this way. You think you have it figured out. And when it comes to sanctification, it's not as big and it shouldn't be as long. And it's not as humbling of an experience as we think it is because we have some knowledge. We have some skills. You might even have some experience because you were raised in the church or read some books. When in reality, sanctification reveals more about our hearts than we realize. The thing about sanctification is, particularly if we approach it with that mentality, that we got it figured out. When we approach sanctification that way, we're thinking that it's rooted in us. It's grounded in our grit. But sanctification is actually rooted in assurance, And whatever or whoever you find assurance in reveals the nature of your heart. In today's text, and here's your main idea, in today's text we learn that whatever hinders our assurance from God clouds the clarity of God's faithfulness for us. Whatever hinders our assurance in God clouds God's faithfulness So let me pray, and we'll dig in to these couple of verses. Heavenly Father, we begin by praising and thanking you for today. Yes, in the six-year anniversary, but also uh, the fact that we get to gather and sing praises to your name. With that, we thank you for the grace in our church over the last six years, and we pray for six more gracious years. To that effect, as we consider uh, your word this afternoon, Lord, we desperately need to hear from you. And so we ask that you would bring both comfort and conviction to us. And in so doing, that you would bring these two so that we can lift our heads, raise our hearts, and worship you lively today. God, give us ears to hear in hearts for believing. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.
All right, well, let's get into it. So for the last two weeks, if you haven't been around or you've missed one or two sermons, for the last two weeks, we've examined, uh, second, or we've examined the Apostle Paul's encouragement and his warnings to the Thessalonians. Over the last two weeks, it's been a lot of warning. It's been a lot of correction concerning the coming of the day of the Lord, the rebellion that will take place, and the man of lawlessness. That's what we looked at last week. Paul has given the Thessalonians a good amount of correction. He's provided them with correction in their doctrine because so many in the church received some kind of teaching, some kind of false teaching, that it shook them up, it scared them. Many of them were confused, and uh, and confusion and anxiety were growing within the church. And so over the last two weeks, we've seen the Apostle Paul bring a great deal of correction and clarity concerning these events and in their doctrine. And now as we come to verse 13, it's almost with the breath of fresh air that in light of everything that is to come, I want to bring you some assurance. And that's what Paul's hope, that's what Paul's hope is here. He turns now from correction to encouragement, and he encourages them through the assurance of God for them. So I want you to consider just the beginning of verse 13. Paul begins by saying this, but we, that's his team, we've talked about this before, that's him, that's young Timothy, that's Sylvanus, we ought always to give thanks to God for you. Paul's encouragement begins with thanksgiving for them. And if you've read any of Paul's other letters, you'll see that he's constantly thanking God for his work in other people. And this is a reminder to us, but also to the Thessalonians, of what Paul has been writing to them on. Why is he thankful to God for them? Well, we saw in chapter 1 these two phrases. We saw that the Thessalonians are growing in their faith and their increasing love for one another. And so after correction, he provides encouragement based on what he is seeing them grow in. And that's wonderful. That should be an encouraging thing for us. And so he's thanking God for their growing faith and their increasing love for one another in the middle of persecution. And then he moves on into this little phrase that we can look over, but I think this is one of the main ideas of this passage. Still in verse 13, we ought always to give thanks to God for you. Here it is, brothers beloved by the Lord. It's really easy to overlook this one little phrase, but I want you to kind of consider the context. See, in light of everything that the Thessalonians have been experiencing, persecution, affliction, pain, loss, hardship, suffering, Paul assures them of God's love for them. See, he's not just correcting them. We just talked about this a little bit. He's correcting them, and now he's moved into encouragement. And so he addresses God's love for them. And we're going to unpack what that looks like in a minute. But for now, I want you to consider this, church. In light of everything that you may be going through, affliction, sorrow, pain, discouragement, defeat, listen to me, God loves you. God adores you. God cherishes you. God is near you. 
This is the assurance, before we dive into the rest of the text, this is the assurance that Paul wants the Thessalonians to hold fast to. This is the assurance that I want you holding fast to right now. Christian, God loves you. See, it's really easy to not not think about that because it sounds corny, right? And if we think it sounds corny, it's because we don't understand it. God loves you loves you. This is for you from him. No one can take this from you. No one. This assurance from God to us is what comforts us in affliction, in pain, in hardship. Here's here's the first question, right? So that was just the pastoral encouragement. Here's here's the question that comes with that. What competes for this assurance in your life? I could ask it differently. What keeps you from God's assurance? Is it your past? I've just jacked up so much in the past, there's no way God would love me today. So I just got to, man, I I just got to get my grit on. I got to work hard, and and, then maybe, just maybe, he'll be cool with me on the last day. Is it your sin? Like, present tense, Christian, if you're walking in unrepentant sin, if you're living in sin, is it just, man, I, I know I'm doing this, and I don't like it, and I hate it. It's a very Pauline moment. The things I shouldn't do, I do. The things I ought to do, I don't, and I hate that. And why would God even want me? Is it your temptation Man, all of these snares just seem to be encamped around me. God knows that I am weak. Why would he want someone weak like me? I can't even say no to my sin. Is that what keeps you from this? Is it your doctrine? Where you're... You go all in, you you go full nerd, and so you have all of these deep concepts and understanding of doctrine, but the irony is that what you know about God actually is keeping you from the assurance of God for you. Because maybe your faith was shaken just like the Thessalonians. Maybe you've swayed in your doctrine to and fro like the Thessalonians. Is it your preferences? That when it comes to what scripture says, particularly about God's love, you want to define God's love the way you'd like it to be for you rather than what scripture says it is. And so because you're wrestling with that tension, even though there's clarity in God's word for you, when you're wrestling with that tension, that's just keeping you from finding assurance in God's love for you. What is competing for this assurance in your life? You see, all of these things that I just listed, to one degree or another, we're going to experience them. And you might be experiencing them right now. 
And they're important to tackle and to consider and to walk through and to talk through. But I want you to take encouragement from the life, as the from the life of the Thessalonians as Paul considers them faithful because they're walking through some of the same thing. And so he encourages them by assuring them of God's love for them. When we hold these things or these experiences above the assurance of God's love for us, we cloud the faithfulness of God for us. I'll say it again. I'm not saying we can't work through them. I'm not saying we can't talk through them. I'm not saying there aren't things that we, don't need, that we have to deal with. I'm not knocking that. What I am saying, or the question was, is that what keeps you from embracing this assurance of God for you? And as a result, when you elevate these experiences, when you elevate these actions, when you elevate these circumstances above the assurance of God, it's go always going to cloud, it's always going to cloud the faithfulness of God for you. Paul reminds them, encourages them of God's assurance because God's, God's assurance of his love for them because this love is rooted in his covenant with them. It's almost like, a, it's a reminder, I should say, this way of Jeremiah 31, 3, where God through Jeremiah says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Check this out. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. God's love for you is rooted in his faithfulness for you. Praise be to God. That's awesome. That's great news. God's love for you is rooted in his faithfulness. And so before we move on, I want you to be assured right now that God adores you, Christian. You might say, well, I, well, God loves all people, right? Look, look, there is this benevolent love that God pours out onto the just and the unjust. And we're not going to talk about that right now, right? But there is this special, particular love that the Father has for his children, those who belong to him. He is near the brokenhearted. He is near to the weak. He is near to the trembling. He loves you. Our comfort in affliction is the assurance of God's love for us. And so now, still in verse 13, Paul turns toward how this assurance is applied to us by God. And so he turns to the character of God specifically. And he does so in order to reinforce and emphasize the assurance of God's love for the Thessalonians. Now, before we dive into this, <clears throat> here's the quick preface, right? We're, we're about to dive into a theological framework that isn't always agreed on by many Christians, right? And I'll tell you why you're wrong in a bit. But before we get there, right, here's what I want to preface. What I want to preface is that for Paul... This theological framework isn't in order to win an argument. Like, that's not how, in other words, that's not how he's thinking about it. 
For Paul, as he begins to unpack the character of God, he's doing so in order to encourage hurting, afflicting, afflicted, and persecuted Christians. So I just want to put that on the table. And so now let's see how the assurance of God's love is demonstrated to the Thessalonians. So Paul turns to the character of God in salvation, right? And what we're going to see is that in the work of salvation, it is this Trinitarian effort. We see God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit all at work in our salvation. And so Paul begins with the work of God the Father. And here's what he says. It's still 13. Uh, Brothers, beloved by the Lord, because, so he's unpacking this assurance, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. I want to focus on two words, the words chose and the word first fruits, right? Those are the two words that we're going to look at. And so when it comes to this word chose or chosen, You're like, is he going to talk about election? Yes, right? Because it's in the text, right? And so here is what election is. If you're unfamiliar with this doctrine, election is God's merciful and mysterious will in saving sinners. It is his merciful and mysterious will in saving sinners. In other words, when God saves sinners, it's not based on their merit. It's not based on their spiritual maturity. It's not based on you evidencing something in your life that God's like, you know what, we could use him on the team, right? Like that's not how it works. It is according to his mercy and love. Well, how do we know it's based on his love? What did Paul just say? Brothers, beloved by God. All of this is rooted in God's love. It's according to his mercy. He doesn't owe us anything. According to his mercy and his love. Paul uses this phrase, so God chose you as the first fruits. The word first fruits is used elsewhere in scripture by Paul. For example, 1 Corinthians 15. In 1 Corinthians 15, however, he's using it as a way to describe how how, uh, the church, for example, is the fruit of of Christ's resurrection. That's not how he's using it here. The the word first fruits tends to refer to a phrase like uh, before time began or before the world began. And so what Paul is saying here is before the foundation of the world, God chose to save you. That's what he's telling the Thessalonians. That's what he's telling you, Christian. Before the foundation of the world, God chose to save you. See, for Paul, this word chosen, right, it's an emphasis on God's covenantal love for us, meaning that in God saving sinners, in God saving you before the foundation of the world, before uh, time began, before you were a thought, before we were even roaming this earth, when God saved you, he totally and absolutely secured you as his treasured people forever. Forever. And so I want you to sit in that for a moment. And how is it that you're securing your salvation? Because God the Father decreed it in eternity past. Before the foundation of the world, and by his sovereign grace, he saved you. Your salvation 
was sovereignly decreed in eternity past before the foundation of the world and actualized when you came to faith in Christ. You were rescued by God from judgment. You were delivered by God from your sin, from yourself, from your self-glory. You were saved by God through his power and the word of his gospel. You were called to him for the purpose of his glory. And this isn't the only section of scripture where we see Paul use this kind of language. We can consider Ephesians 1. Paul writes, even as he chose us, he's speaking about the Father, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, there's that phrase that we should be holy and blameless before him. The problem with election and Christians is sometimes, and this is speaking very general, is twofold. For example, there are some Christians, and again, this is a very, very, very general overview. For some Christians, they have a low view of God's sovereignty. At the very minimum, we got to agree that God is sovereign. We see that throughout all of the pages of Scripture, that God is sovereign, so we need to at least begin there. Yet there are many who argue that his sovereignty is in competition with our uh, free choice, our volition, our free will, if you will. (laughs) But to say that, to say that God's sovereignty is in competition with our finiteness, is to say that God's sovereignty is actually limited. And if God's sovereignty is limited, then God is not sovereign. So you got to do business with that, right? But then we swing to the other side. And there's some nerds who have a really high view of the sovereignty of God. And they have such a high view of the sovereignty of God that this beautiful uh, doctrine, this beautiful attribute is idolized. Everything else about who God is, everything uh, else about what God does is almost ignored. And this one attribute is idolized. And in doing so, many individuals grow arrogant and self-righteous. Listen, The mystery in God's electing grace in our moral responsibility is a mystery to us because we're the ones that make it complicated. It's not a mystery to him. Charles Spurgeon, uh, I've, I've quoted him before, when asked about what's called man's responsibility and the sovereignty of God. He says, I'm tired of trying to reconcile these two. Why would I reconcile two best friends? So they run in parallel. It's a very general overview of the sovereignty of God, but here's what I want to get that with it. Here's where I want to go with that. Is that theology what keeps you from assurance? Like, is that the best answer you can come up with? Because you don't get it, regardless of where you land, is your theology what keeps you from that assurance of God's love for you? God's sovereign grace ought to produce or invoke 
worship in us. It ought to invoke dependence upon God. There's plenty of things that are out of my control, but there's nothing that's out of his. That ought to invoke worship and dependence. God has called you to himself solely according to his mercy and the counsel of his will. So that's the first one. The second one, Paul moves to tell us that we are not only chosen by God as the first fruits, but he says that we're sanctified by God in the truth. He continues, still in verse 13. So he says, as God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification, big word, we'll look at it, through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. And so our salvation is rooted in God's love for us, him calling us to himself in eternity past, but it is lived out in the power that comes by the Holy Spirit. And Paul uses this fancy schmancy word called sanctification. So we gotta define it. And so I'll do my best. Well, I mean, I have several definitions, but I'm gonna gonna do one. Here we go. (laughs) Hold on. It's hot in here. Here's sanctification, the continued grace of the Holy Spirit in the renewal of our nature as we respond to the work of God. The continued or the ongoing grace of the Holy Spirit in the renewal of our nature as we respond to the work of God. Sanctification is the process all of us are in. It's not a one-time thing like our justification. When we are declared justified, when we are declared right before God, that happens at the moment of salvation. And as soon as that happens, we are then shot right into sanctification, right then and there. Sanctification is the process by which we are shaped to be more like Christ. And I believe that when it comes to our sanctification, we either see it as a one and done, Got it. God saved me. Nice. Awesome. Rock on. I'm just going to keep going and do my own thing, right? And what does Paul say? Should we continue to sin so that grace may abound? What does he say? By no means, right? So it's not a one and done. Not the agas, right? The second one, <clears throat> so it's either it's a one and done, or the second way of looking at sanctification is like, I got to figure it out. Like us in our projects, right? Us in our systems. It's like, no, I got it. I got it. Don't worry. I know enough. I have enough uh, experience. You don't know how many books I read. I read my Bible that one time, right? Like that's how we tend to approach sanctification. Like it's one and done or we got it figured out. But the beauty about sanctification is that it's littered with grace and it's a loving reminder where God comes to us and he says, nope. Nope. Why? Because sanctification is a work that he began for us. It is a work that he is accomplishing through us. It is a work that he will complete in us. So just when you think you got to figure it out, nope. That should have been the main idea of the text. Nope. Anyway, so with that being said, well then how are we sanctified by the Spirit. Paul gives us two things. He says, the truth uh, through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. So the truth and belief, we're going to kind of make distinctions. The truth is the truth of God. 
the truth of God from his word. So Jesus in John 14 on the spirit goes on to say, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all, in, into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. Elsewhere in John, Jesus says, hey, when the spirit comes, he's gonna counsel you, he's gonna change you, he's gonna convict you all according to what I've said. So we got the truth of God, and then there's belief. What's belief? Our commitment to that truth. So, like us in our projects, what is your sanctification revealing about you? When you think you got it figured out, what is your sanctification revealing about you? Is it your arrogance or your self-righteousness? Is it your impatience and your cynicism like me? Is it the sin that you're living in that you don't want to confess even though the Lord knows? Is it the arrogance? I got it, I'm good, I know. We've talked about that phrase before. I know, I know. If sanctification reveals the nature of our heart, that's a good thing. The Holy Spirit is showing us, in that moment, the Holy Spirit is showing us where or what or in who we're trying to find assurance in. See, the comical thing about Christians is that when God does what he says he will do, we trip. I just want God to change me. And then he's like doing it, and you're like, why? Right, like, that's... (laughs) Moving on. What... Is your sanctification, what is the Spirit revealing to you in your sanctification? And so Paul has looked at the work of the Father, the work of the Spirit, and now he leads us to stand with God for glory. Now he's turning to the work of the Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, and our salvation. So I think this is the start of 14, and he says, To this, the salvation to this he called you through our gospel. Look, someone shared the gospel with you, Christian. That's why you're here. Right? I wasn't like, I figured it out. We've just discovered, nope, right? Like, don't. Someone shared the gospel with you. So to this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. We were called by God through the gospel. What's the gospel? That God entered into human history as the man Jesus Christ and that he lived a sinless life and died in our place for our sin on the cross and then was buried and three days later was resurrected and then offers us the free grace of salvation that you and I cannot earn. This is the message that God uses in order to call you to himself so that you would obtain glory. And Paul says it better than I ever could. Colossians 1, he says, he has delivered us. He's he's talking about the Father. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. At one point you were in darkness. At one point you were in rebellion. At one point you were estranged. At one point you were dead in your sin and God has transferred you into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Your sins have been forgiven. We stand with God because of Jesus' work 
before us. Though evils around us and the snares of temptation encamp us, we can stand firm in the assurance of God's love for us through our salvation, through our sanctification, and the glory that is to come. Do you need assurance in this, Christian? If you're like, man, I get it, but I don't get it. I just feel weak. I can't. I'm scared. Here to be my encouragement. Come before the Lord this afternoon in communion. It's a truth you can touch. It's a truth for you. It's the reminder of his grace for you. That the cup represents the blood that was spilt on your behalf. That was the currency that was used to buy you out of your bondage to sin. That the bread represents not only his broken body, but it tells us that Jesus is the bread of life. And he's the only one who can fully nourish you. We can have assurance for God's love through our salvation, our sanctification, and the glory that is to come. And so now in this section, as Paul begins to conclude, he turns his attention back to the Thessalonians. So he's assured them with God's love. He's unpacked the character of God in his work of salvation. And so now he turns specifically to the Thessalonians and their response. This is verse 15. He says, Brothers, stand firm. Hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. So, man, how do we, how, how do we hold to this? And he says, stand firm in affliction, in hardship, in spiritual warfare. Stand firm in the ground that Christ has already secured for you. Stand firm in God's assurance for you. This phrase, stand firm, is another way of saying hold fast. And so what Paul is saying is, I want you to white-knuckle grip God's assurance for you. I want you to hold on to that so tight, not just on the good days, but especially in those challenging seasons of hardship. I want you to knuckle grip, white-knuckle grip that assurance for you. And what's the assurance? That God loves you. He wants you to hold fast to that. If you're like, I get it, I get it, stand firm, or I got to hold fast to this assurance, but how do I do that? The second thing that Paul tells us is hold fast to the tradition, to the tradition that you were taught by us, by spoken word, that is when they were there, or by letter, that is all these letters that he's been writing to them. So for you and I, how do we hold to the tradition? Here's the first one, God's love. This is verse 13. We spent a good amount of time there. There's a reason for that. I don't think this is on the notes. That's my bad. Anyway, God's, God's love. God's love for you. How do I white-knuckle grip this assurance? I want you to hold fast to the assurance of God for you. Next one is God's grace. If nothing done by us or our righteousness is what led us uh, to come before God, it is solely by his grace, then let us worship him, for he is merciful and gracious. Even now, as you sit, you and I, I'm standing, but as you sit, God's grace is being poured out onto you. And how do I hold on to this tradition? Through the gospel. Each one of us preaches something to ourselves on the daily. What are we preaching, church? Hold fast to the gospel. 
And one of my favorite verses, because it's the shortest one, he just drives right into it. It's 1 Timothy 1.15, that God came to save sinners. That is the gospel. God's word. Christian, what are you reading? Right? Not on social media, not on the latest app. Man, is your Bible open? Are you repeatedly going back to the word of God? The psalmist says that God's word is like a lamp to his feet. God's work, God's work in you, the fruit in your life. And you're like, I don't think I see fruit. So let me dare you to ask someone. (laughs) Ask someone, which leads into the last one, God's people, right? Like we are being transformed by God, but we don't do it alone. We do it in community. Man, the minute you isolate and the minute you back out and the minute that you bail, not good things start happening. So if you're like, man, I'm weak or I can't hold to this tradition, are you in community so that you would be encouraged, so that you would be pointed back to the character of God? Listen, church, God is not distant from you. He is not absent from you. God is near you. God has made himself known to you through Jesus so that you would always make your way toward him, so that you would always find him because he is never far from you. Stand firm by holding to the traditions. So like my family and I, maybe you think you got it figured out. Or maybe you're super aware that you don't have it figured out. Either way, both ways of thinking keep you from assurance. They keep you from comfort. They keep you from growth. They keep you from peace. Church, I want you to stand firm today. Not because you're awesome, but because God's awesome. I mean, I think you're awesome. But, but God is more awesomer. I want you to white-knuckle God's love for you because of God's faithful work in you. I want you to define God's love the way Scripture defines it, not by how you want to define God's love for you. I want you, like Paul, to turn to the character of God so that your assurance is not clouded by your past or your sin or your theology or your confusion. I want you, like Paul, to turn to the character of God so that your assurance would not be clouded. And so as we wrap up, Christian, here's the question. What keeps you from assurance? What do you need to bring before the Lord today? Like, I can't be the only one in this boat, right? Like, again, we think something like, oh, God is love, and that's so corny, and then we want to theologize it and philosophize it, right? But the idea really is that that's really sometimes a stiff arm because we don't really want to engage that because what if it's true? And that might scare you. That doesn't make it unreal or untrue. What keeps you from this assurance? Here's here's what I desire, man. I pray that the Lord convicts you this afternoon and bring comfort to you at the same time so that your hearts would be encouraged and so that your eyes would be lifted up to Jesus. So come before the Lord. Let me invite you to repent. And if you're not a Christian, here's the question. Well, thank you for being here. What keeps you from receiving assurance? If you're like, no, I'm good, I'm I'm a good moral person, listen, let's just be honest, it's corrupt. No, man, I got this, you know, I'm I'm, I'm self-reliant. Let me ask you, how's that really going for you? Like, not that guy's for real. How is that really going for you? 
The truth, however, is that God has made a way for you to receive eternal assurance through the life, death, and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. And so I would invite you to repent of your sin and to come before the Lord in faith and repentance. Church, whatever keeps us from the assurance of God clouds the faithfulness of God for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, once more, we thank you for this afternoon, for allowing us to gather, for allowing us to sit under the preached word, for singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs and prayers. Lord, we thank you for that. God, I'm just going to put this on the table. Uh, Many of us are just afraid to sometimes truly engage your love for us, to be assured by your love for us. Sometimes it's because of fear. What if we just do something so bad that you bounce? Sometimes it's insecurity. We just don't know enough. Or, or what, if, what if the season, what if the circumstance doesn't get better? God, would you bring us comfort? Would you bring us comfort with your grace so that we would sit in the assurance of your love for us? Just for right now, just so that we would sit there, so that we would receive it. Oh man, it's so hard to receive your grace sometimes. And that's not on you, that's on us. And so Lord, we, we confess our pride. We, we confess our unbelief. We confess our idolatry. We confess our self-righteousness. We confess that we ignore you. We confess all sorts of things. And Lord, in this confession and in our conviction, Would you bring us comfort with your grace? To find assurance in your love because of our salvation, our sanctification, and the glory that is to come. Lord, may we white knuckle this truth. May we hold fast with white knuckles to this truth. It is for us, and no one can take it from us. Praise be to your name.